Hi, I'm Ali Hassan, host of CBC's Laugh Out Loud. Do you like to laugh? Because we're serving up big laughs each week. We feature comedians from across Canada. You might already be fans of some of them, and others might be new discoveries. We record emerging comedians and established pros in front of live audiences all across the country, and we promise that you'll be literally laughing out loud. You can find Laugh Out Loud on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Cherie Demoline has a background you might not expect from a best-selling, widely respected novelist. She's the daughter of a magician, and she spent some time as her dad's assistant. She has a lot to say about how working in the world of magic made her a better writer and how you sneak social commentary into books for kids. That's coming up. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. I don't get to say this very often, so I'll say it. Long before our next guest became an award-winning novelist, she was a magician's assistant. I'm talking about the author Cherie Demoline. Her dad was a magician, and he showed her all of his tricks, like misdirecting attention and balancing on the tip of a sword. Not stuff you'd think would help you in your career, unless you're planning on buying, like, a rabbit and a hat and one of those boxes you can saw people in and, like, heading off to Vegas. I'm aware... By the way, that my idea of a magician is still like 1914 or like a Bugs Bunny cartoon. Unless you're, unless you're planning on wearing a top hat and hitting the road with vaudeville. Anyway, Cherie is going to tell you how that whole experience helped her become one of the most celebrated writers ever to come out of Canada. Her most famous novel is called The Marrow Thieves and won the Governor General's Award for Young People's Literature. It still makes list as one of the best YA books of all time. She has a new book coming out tomorrow called Into the Bright Open, so we thought it might be a good time to revisit a conversation uh, we had with Cherie. We talked about her most recent YA novel called Funeral Songs for Dying Girls. I'll be candid with you, the plot technically doesn't have anything to do with magic, but as I mentioned, you'd be surprised how it might help. Here's my conversation with Cherie Demoline. How are you? I'm great, Tom. How are you? Oh, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm feeling better. You know, we, we were supposed to talk last week and I had, yeah. to, I had to cancel on you, which I never get to do, but I had to cancel on you because I got a little sick. So thanks for being so understanding. Oh, it's my pleasure. And I think you have one of those jobs where if you have a bit of a scratchy throat or a cough, you definitely have the best excuse for not coming into work. <laughs> but I also have one of those jobs that the minute I get a cough or a scratchy throat, everybody knows it because I can't hide it on the radio. So I get all these messages being like, are you taking, you know, talcum powder and all that kind of stuff, you know, so... <laughs> God, you get anti-advice from across the country. <laughs> I really do. I have a lot, so many recommendations for hot toddies. Um, I want to. <laughs> I want to talk about your your story here. So you were a magician's assistant to your, to your dad. Like, what kind of tricks was he doing? Yeah. So so my dad was a part time magician. He was also a chef and a restaurant manager. And someone somewhere, I don't know when the first time was, uh, sort of discovered that he had. Uh, this passion for magic. And so he started doing uh, stage shows and it was, you know, at, at local events. And then he would, you know, do things at my school. So I was kind of roped in along with him to be his assistant. And it really, you know, it, you're right. It did teach me a lot in terms of life. So first of all, you know, that you have to always be ready. Just like, I think it's, it's like a famous RuPaul quote, right? Like, you stay ready, you ain't got to get ready. So right. you got to be ready for anything. Yeah. But it also taught me mastering directing attention. So you can get a lot done in the seconds 
when sort of a exaggerated hand flourish or a colorful distraction pulls focus. And I think that's really valuable in storytelling because you can slip in a lot of information or, you know, cover a meaningful issue while pulling focus with action or some really intense dialogue. It's kind of like, um, Tom, I don't know if you know a lot about, about screenwriting. Have you heard this idea of the Pope in the pool? No. Okay. All right. So here's the trick of the trade. So the Pope in the pool is a technique in, in screenwriting and it's where you're at a scene and you have to get a lot of exposition done, but you don't want to bore the audience. So you give them something just incredulous to watch while you're laying down all those beats. So you would like, I don't know, get the Pope to go for a swim and the watchers are so distracted by the spectacle of the actual Pope, just like doing the butterfly stroke in a white bathing suit yeah. that they'll put up with minutes of you just straight talking, just doing explanation. So I learned that if you can direct people's attention with something interesting that you can really get a lot of those more boring bits or dare I even say it, the morals through at that moment. Well, this is making a lot of sense to me now because I think you're you're an author that's known for... Oh, so, so just to clarify here, what you're saying is that you learn from your dad the idea of like misdirection. If you can put people's attention on something else, you can kind, yes. of, you can kind of do something else at the same time, which also kind of works yes. in screenwriting. And you're an author that's known for writing these sort of like beautiful, fun, I mean, you know, exciting sort of novels and, and especially YA books, but you're also a author that's known for having this sort of subtle second layer. Like the Marrow Thieves was like not quite about colonialism, but it was kind, like it was in there, right? Oh, absolutely. It was a Trojan horse. It was, you know, it was written at a time when um, conversations about, about residential schools were starting to happen. And um, a lot of it, was, I mean, all of it was very troubling and a lot of it was very problematic. And so my goal was just to create these group of characters in a situation that we could, any one of us could see ourselves in and, you know, in this sort of post-apocalyptic realm and just to have you absolutely love them and want to go on this journey with them. But really what I was talking about was not the future, it was the past. Um, and in a book like Venco that just came out last month, I mean, you know, here it is. It's this sort of fun road trip romp with witches. Everybody loves witch stories. But the whole thing is about tearing down the patriarchy <laughs> and what could what could sort of take the place of that failing system. You know, this this book, Funeral Songs, is, is about a lot of things. It's about grief yeah. and trauma and about reconnecting and reclamation of, of identity, especially when you're young. So, yeah, there's there's some pretty heavy topics. And I think if I put that sort of on the cover, people would be a little more hesitant to come to it and to more, more importantly, to really take it in and allow it to, to, yeah. to make some change. So it's good to have um, some lovely distractions and beautiful scenes to get that work done. It's good to have a rabbit sitting in the hat yes. somewhere so you can get that done. I get, were you, hold on, were you ever saw, were you ever sawed in half? Uh, I was not. There were other people who were sawed in half. I disappeared. I did balance on a okay. sword. Okay. Yeah, I did a. I did a lot of that stuff. I also had to. My my dad has this love of old theater and and plays, and so I had to. Um, one of the first things I had to memorize was that who's on first bit. Abbott and Costello, like who's on first? Yes. I don't know who's on second. That kind of third. Yeah, that kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. So at you know six years old, that was like right there. <laughs> you were Just doing vaudeville. <laughs> Hold on. So, so let, let's go back. Let's go back to funeral songs for dying girls. Your 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 new book, and you just touched on mm -hmm. this. So, but I think in order to get to some of the larger themes, we should talk about the story itself. It's about. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, it's also 
again, about a father-daughter relationship, the father in the story, not a magician. Um, why did you set your book at a crematorium? Yeah, so I, I I, mean, really, this is the story of Winifred. She's 16, and so she's living in an apartment uh, above the office in a Toronto cemetery, and her widowed father runs the crematorium. It's crematorium, um, isn't it? I said crematorium, but it's crematorium. So, you know what? I loved it. I was like, ooh, he's a little bit French, maybe? I don't know what's going on. Um, <laughs> And she, you know, accidentally starts a rumor that the cemetery is haunted because she is, you know, given to wandering. This is her sort of backyard, as it were. And that brings in these uh, ghost tours. And with that money coming in now, it could stop her father from being laid off. But it also gives him this false hope that it's her late mother's spirit visiting. And he's even more reluctant to move on, which is, of course, exactly what he needs to do. And then to complicate things, because they're not complicated enough, a real ghost has started showing up and Winifred starts developing feelings for this girl that, I mean, is no longer alive. And so I think what I what I really wanted to get at is 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 grief and the ways in which, you know, we we have to try and relocate grief from this trauma space into a place where it becomes a memory that's, you know, buoyant and that can allevi- alleviate pain that emboldens you. And so it, it, it seemed to me like literally um, putting this story in in a graveyard um, where somebody's job is dealing with the dead. It was just, you know, such a such a clear cut way to get to that space that I wanted to be in, which is just, you know, the idea that some people feel, you know, if you feel surrounded by the dead, it can be very lonely. But for other people, those are ancestors. And that's yeah. a very crowded, joyous space. C- can you help me ex- explain can you help me understand that a little bit better? The idea of the one of the goals you had for this book was to relocate grief from a trauma space to somewhere else. Help me understand that a bit better. Yeah. So, you know, I, I was thinking a lot about grief and the role that it plays in our life. Yeah. And I was thinking about specifically the ways uh, in which when we're carrying grief, sometimes you can physically feel it. And yeah. for me, and, and you know, this seemed very odd, um, but I guess it makes sense in the grander scheme. For me, when I'm, you know, grieving, there's this this sort of physicality, this pain of it. And it's on the, this part is strange, but I feel it mostly in the backs of my knees. And I thought, mm. oh, maybe this is why people fall to the ground when they're when they're you know they have so much grief or they're there's there's such a traumatic experience you literally fall your legs can't hold you up yeah so i thought about all of those spaces right the areas in which in our lives and in our dreams um that that grief can occupy and so the work of to me and everyone's different and certainly there's you know cultural elements to it and there's just personal uh, ways that we handle things but for me the change really happens when you can start to say, have a memory of someone who's passed and it no longer makes you cry or makes you weak in the knees. It, it, it makes you laugh and you really get the joy of that moment. That's the the work of, of the grieving process for me was like, how do you transform that from something that's horrible into something that once again uh, is, is really joyous. And so um, in the story, Winifred is sort of stuck in this in-between place. Literally, her father is grieving her mother uh, so much that they live in the cemetery where she's buried. And so what does that mean for a young, bright spirit? And how how does she move forward kind of dragging, uh, you know, a parent yeah. who's still grieving with her? We'll be right back. 
Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Talk to me a little bit about how you approach writing YA and and writing for adults. Are there are there major differences in how you how you come at it? Yeah. So here's the thing. I I never uh, change. I guess what they would say. You know the the level of reading. There's apparently I'm not a teacher. God bless teachers. But I there's different levels of reading um, that you you sort of write at for different um, audiences. I, I never change sort of the sophistication uh, level of the writing. Okay. I think young people are brilliant and adaptive and like, let's face it, love uh, sort of the dark corners of stories. So um, that doesn't change. What changes is the ways in which the story unravels. So if it is sort of this more uh, adult literature um, it's like walking up a hill, right? It's it's gathering what you need. It's very contemplative. I can rely on, I can make assumptions about a shared experience, you know, for people of a certain age. Well, you know, you probably understand what I mean when I'm talking about this sort of, you know, first heartbreak or like, you, you know, the, I guess, you know, this sexual experience that you may have had. Yeah. Like there's these things that I can make assumptions about based on the years that you've lived. And it's about building towards something. And for me, when I write YA, I know it's YA the moment when I find myself um, sort of on top of this metaphorical hill and just running down like arms windmilling, like face in the wind, just like mm. chest forward. There's something so brave uh, and 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 just I mean, you just give her when you're young, right? I mean, you couldn't pay me to be 15 again. There's not enough money in the world because that 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 was hard. Oh yeah, it sucked. Um, but it is like, wow, what bravery you have to have to just head into life, just fully open and just towards whatever's waiting for you. So I when a story starts, you know, when it when it is running down a hill and it is full joy and full horror. And and it's really living in, in every cell, and that generally is a YA book. I mean, that's that's so so beautiful, and it kind of brings me to how I wanted to close things off here, and maybe the last minute or so. The the one of the things I I like to do in the show is you know people often. Uh, listen to the show who are writing or trying to write their first novel or trying, I mean, people have reached out to me and said, you know, I, I listen to this while I'm trying to formulate my first like poem or my first novel or, or, or something like that. And I, I wanted to ask you about a ritual you have that I think might help authors or prospective authors who listen to this show that you, it's something to do with like Pinterest boards or, or magazine cutouts. Can you talk to me about that? Oh, absolutely. So um, Tom, I have a lot of writer friends who are in my, I, I think maybe they're showing off. They're kind of maybe show offs, but also I think low key, they're just, well, high key, they're geniuses. Right. So, um, you know, for example, Eden Robinson, I've seen pictures of her office, which number one is tidy. Like wow. what? Wow. That? Yeah. Crazy. And two, she has 
you know, she'll have like uh, schedules up. If she's writing something in say like 1992, she'll have a calendar of 1992 so she can track the days properly and everything's formulated and broken down and like different sections are highlighted. And that seems like ADHD hell to me for my <laughs> very disorganized mind. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously it works for her, you know, she's the great, but for me, I had to find a way of keeping track of what it was that I wanted to tell, because when you're writing, you are rushing ahead in your mind and falling behind in actually the craft of creating the story. Right. Um, and that's great. It means the story has a life of its own, but it's very frustrating. So I found that, uh, collecting images that hold the emotion or the tone or the atmosphere uh, or the narrative that I want to include in the story. If I collect those images and keep them somewhere where I can see them, it allows me to use it as a, as a kind of schedule. So I'll either use a Pinterest board where I'll, I'll find images that, um, you know, it, it doesn't even have to be exact. It's not like sometimes it is a, you know, a literal photo of a person that I think this reminds me of that character, but other times it could just be, you know, a very um, like for funeral songs, a lot of the, uh, pictures in the Pinterest board were, um, you know, there was a, a creek with like a, a an old shopping cart. There was uh, the way fog rolls across a field. It just held the feeling that I wanted to be able to capture. And other times it's it's literally, you know, I rip things out of magazines. I'm like an old school guy that like still goes and gets magazines and then just decimates them. And I'll put them up on, on uh, you know, sort of the walls of wherever my writing space is. But it is a lovely way to hold on to the emotionality of the story and not have to become like uh, an anal retentive mm. genius that sort of tracks everything out. Uh, in words. I love I love that that plan. It's also sort of I love the Pinterest idea of it too because it's sort of like a more modernized modernized version of that and something a little bit tidier as a as a messy yeah. non-Eden person myself. Well, listen, it's <laughs> it's such a, it's such a joy to to talk to you and and congratulations on the book and and thanks so much for making the time. Thank you so much, Tom. I really appreciate it. I was waiting until the day when we could talk because you always talk to my favorite people and I was getting jealous. So I really appreciate this. Oh, I, I received your letters. No, I'm only joking. I'm only, <laughs> I'm, I'm only kidding. I've been looking forward to talking to you as well. And thanks a lot for understanding on our on our scheduling stuff. And, and um, I really enjoyed uh, the book. So thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much, Tom. I appreciate it. Thanks so much to Cherie Demelion for that conversation. It's nice, you know, during the, the during the warmer months to be revisiting some of our older chats here on Q. Um, the other conversation we put up today is one of my favorites uh, ever we've ever had on the show. Pamela Anderson, who um, came in to talk about telling her own story, and it doesn't occur to you until halfway through our conversation just how much you know about her. And how much you know about her has been told to you by other people. How she's never really been in charge of her own story. And she's going to talk to you a little bit about how it feels to take her story back. Go check that out. See you soon. Later on.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.